Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, Book 10, Chapter 5. How does the weather add to the general atmosphere in this part of the war? Do you think this is true to history or just fictional liberty on Tolstoy's part? I don't know why I was imagining winter and cold, and then suddenly they were in like dust and desert. Prince Andre seems to be having an internal battle during this chapter. On one hand, the war has hardened him and... The new feeling of anger against the foe made him forget his own grief. Yet at the same time, as soon as he ran into someone from his former life, he at once bristled up again. What does this mean for Andre? How does the visit to Bald Hills affect Andre? Why is he described as refreshed after leaving his old home? Kara Kikar says, I I was really interested in the description of Andre as kind and generous with the people of his regiment, but contemptuous to those from his former life. Here at Bald Hills, we see the clash of war on the Andre's personal peace. His worlds are colliding, and the him that was before is being destroyed. He will have to reckon with who he really is. The weather and dust give a hellish intensity to this. In a different novel, we might have seen the weeping of the ruined peasants, but I think the dust and dryness evokes starvation and hunger in an immediate way, hinting at the misery that is to come good point it really did evoke that kind of barrenness which was uh quite visceral in that chapter another good question that was asked on the subreddit by the real locuro was why is war and peace considered a classic the real locuro was having a conversation with their friend about war and peace and was asked you know what's so good about it and um thought he might or he or she, might extend the question our way. Other side B says, For me, the most impressive aspects of War and Peace are it has an incredibly detailed and accurate portrayal of the war from multiple perspectives, including regular soldiers, all the way up to the most important generals. Tolstoy, Tolstoy is incredible at portraying the inner thoughts that we all have in text through the inner monologue of the central characters, fears, anxieties, self-delusions, hopes, dreams, etc., This makes the characters extremely relatable. The characters feel like real people that you could realistically encounter in 19th century Russia upper-class society. Their characterization doesn't feel forced or overly dramatized. It feels like a very accurate portrait of a particular moment in time. Historic Bookworm pointed out there's a TED Talk about this exact topic. I'll find out the title of it now for you. And Dolphin Sweater had a good point. What others have said I find to be true, but I'll add that we lose a lot in translation. I was recently talking with a guy and mentioned we're reading War and Peace. He said he'd actually read it in the original Russian and that Tolstoy can really turn a phrase. Apparently there is so much nuance and humour and innuendo in his writing that I'm not sure we're picking up on by reading the translation. I mean, can you imagine reading a translation of Shakespeare? His plays alone have contributed so much to the fabric of English language that they are almost inseparable. I think it must be almost the same with Tolstoy. Very good point. Um, There's a TED Talk which is simply called Why Should You Read Tolstoy's War and Peace by Brendan uh, Palsu. So if you search Ted, Ted Ed, Tolstoy's War and Peace, I'm sure you'll find that video. Um, Might give that a watch at some point. I might have even watched that before, I'm not sure. Anyway... Let's read chapter 6. It goes like this. 
Among the innumerable categories applicable to the phenomena of human life, one may discriminate between those in which substance prevails and those in which form prevails. To the latter as distinguished from village, country, provincial, or even Moscow life, we may allot Petersburg life, and especially the life of its salons. That life of the salons is unchanging. Since the year 1805 we had made peace and had again quarrelled with Bonaparte and had made constitutions and unmade them again, but the salons of Anna Pavlovna and Helena remained just as they had been, the one seven and the other five years before. At Anna Pavlovna's they talked with perplexity of Bonaparte's successes, just as before and saw in them and in the subservience shown to him by the European sovereigns a malicious conspiracy, the sole object of which was to cause unpleasantness and anxiety to the court circle of which Anna Pavlovna was the representative. And in Helena's salon, which Rumyantsev himself honoured with his visits, regarding Helena as a remarkably intelligent woman, they talked with the same ecstasy in 1812 as in 1808, and the great nation and the great man, and regretted our rupture with France, a rupture which, according to them, ought to be promptly terminated by peace. Of late, since the emperor's return from the army, there had been some excitement in these conflicting salon circles, and some demonstrations of hostility to one another. But each camp retained its own tendency. In Anna Pavlovna's circle, only those Frenchmen were admitted who were deep-rooted legitimists, and patriotic views were expressed to the effect that one ought not to go to the French theatre, and that to maintain the French troop was costing the government as much as a whole army corps. The progress of the war was eagerly followed, and only the reports most flattering to our army were circulated in the French circle of Helena and Rumiansteve, the reports of the cruelty of the enemy and of the war were contradicted, and all Napoleon's attempts at reconciliation sorry at conciliation were discussed. In that circle they discountenanced those who advised hurried preparations for a removal of Kazan, of the court, and the girls' educational establishments under the patronage of the Dowage Dowager Empress. In Helena's circle, the war in general was regarded as a series of formal demonstrations which would very soon end in peace, and the view prevailed expressed by Bilibin, who now in Petersburg was quite at home in Helena's house, which every cl clever man was obliged to visit, not that not by gunpowder but by those who invented it would matters be settled. In the circle of Moscow, enthusiasm news of which had reached Petersburg simultaneously with the Emperor's return, was ridiculed sarcastically and very cleverly, though with much caution. Anna Pavlovna's circle, on the contrary, was enraptured by this enthusiasm and spoke of it as Plutarch speaks of the deeds of the ancients. Prince Vasily, who still occupied his former important posts, formed a connecting link between these two circles, he visited his good friend Anna Pavlovna as well as his daughter's diplomatic salon, and often, in his constant comings and goings between the two camps, became confused and said at Helen is what he should have said at Anna Pavlovna's and vice versa. Soon after the Emperor's return, Prince Vasily, in a conversation about the war at Anna Pavlovna, severely condemned Barclay de Tolly, but was undecided as to who ought to be appointed commander-in-chief. One of the visitors, usually spoken of as man a man of merit, great merit, 
Having described how he had that day seen Kutuzov, the newly chosen chief of the Petersburg militia, presiding over the enrolment of recruits at the treasury, cautiously ventured to suggest that Kutuzov would be the man to satisfy all requirements, Anna Pavlovna remarked with a melancholy smile that Kutuzov had done nothing but caused the emperor annoyance. I have talked and talked at the assembly of the nobility, Prince Vasily interrupted, and they did not listen to me. I told them his election as chief of the militia would not please the emperor. They did not listen to me. It's all the mania, all this mania for opposition, he went on. And who for? It is all because we want to ape the foolish enthusiasm of those Moscovites, Prince Vasily continued, forgetting for a moment that he, though at Helena's one had to ridicule the Moscow enthusiasm at Anna Pavlovna's, one had to be ecstatic about it. But he retrieved his mistake at once. Now, is it suitable that Count Kutuzov, the oldest general in Russia, should preside at that tribunal? He will get nothing for his pains. How could they make a man commander-in-chief who cannot mount a horse, who drops asleep at the council, and has the very worst morals? A good reputation he made for himself at Bucharest. I don't speak of his capacity to, as a general, but at the time... Like this, how they appoint a decrepit blind old man, positively blind, a fine idea to have a blind general, you can't see anything. To play blind man's bluff, you can't see it all. No one replied to his remarks. This was quite correct on the 24th of July, but on the 29th of July, Kutuzov received the title of prince. This might indicate a wish to get rid of him, and therefore Prince Vasily's opinion continued to be correct, though he was not now in any hurry to express it. But on the 8th of August, a committee consisting of Field Marshal Soltikov, Arakchev, Vyazmitovznov, Lopokshin, and Kuchabey met to consider the progress of the war. This committee came to the conclusion that our failures were due to a want of unity in the command, and though the members of the committee were aware of the Emperor's dislike of Kutuzov, after a short deliberation, they agreed to advise his appointment as Commander-in-Chief. That same day, Kutuzov was appointed commander-in-chief with full powers over the armies and over the whole region occupied by them. On the 9th of August, Prince Vasily at Anna Pavlovna's met again the man of great merit. The latter was very attentive to Anna Pavlovna because he wanted to be appointed director of one of the educational establishments for young ladies. Prince Vasily entered the room with the air of a happy conqueror who was attained, has a, who has attained the object of his desires. Well, have you heard the great news? Prince Kutuzov is field marshal. All dissensions are at an end. I am so glad, so delighted. At last we have a man, said he, glancing sternly and significantly around at everyone in the drawing room. The man of great merit, despite his desire to obtain the post of director, could not refrain from reminding Prince Vasily of his former opinion, though this was impolite to Prince Vasily in Anna Pavlovna's drawing room and also to Anna Pavlovna herself, who had received the news with delight who could not resist the temptation. But Prince, they say, he is blind, said he, reminding Prince Vasily of his own words. Eh, nonsense. He sees well enough, said Prince Vasily rapidly, in a deep voice and with a slight cough, the voice and cough with which he was wont to dispose of all difficulties. He sees well enough, he added, and what I am so pleased about, he went on, is that our sovereign has given him full powers over all the armies and the whole region powers no commander-in-chief ever had before. He is a great autocrat, he concluded with a victorious smile. 
God grant it, God grant it, said Anna Pavlovna. The man of great merit, who was still a novice in court circles, wishing to flatter Anna Pavlovna by defending her former position on this question, observed, It is said that the emperor was reluctant to give Kutuzov those powers. They say he blushed like a girl to whom Jaconde is read when he said to Kutuzov, Your emperor and the fatherland award you this honour. Perhaps the heart took no part in that speech, said Anna Pavlovna. Oh, no, no, warmly rejoiced Prince Vasily, who would not now yield Kutuzov to anyone. In his opinion, Kutuzov was not only admirable himself, but was adored by everyone. No, that's impossible, said he, for our sovereign appreciated him so highly before. God grant only that Prince Kutuzov assumes real power and does not allow anyone to poke a, put a spoke in his wheel, observed Anna Pavlovna. Understanding at once to whom she alluded, Prince Vasily said in a whisper, I know for a fact that Kutuzov made it an absolute condition that the Tsarvich should not be with the army. Do you know what he said to the Emperor? And Prince Vasily repeated the words supposed to have been spoken by Kutuzov to the Emperor. I can neither punish him if he does wrong, nor reward him if he does right. Oh, a very wise man is Prince Kutuzov. I have known him a long time. They even say, remarked the man of great merit, who did not yet possess courtly tact, that His Excellency made it an express condition that the Sovereign himself should not be with the army. As soon as he said this, both Prince Vasily and Anna Pavlovna turned away from him and glanced sadly at one another with a sigh at his naivety. All right, there you go. Another chapter for you. We're in the salons. Anna Pavlovna having soirees and whatnot. Or, well, not exactly soirees, but, you know, doing the Anna Pavlovna thing. And Helena following in her footsteps. Very cool. All right, good to check in with Prince Vasily too. Haven't seen him for a while. Have your say about that over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.